just who this fellow is. He's Punky Punkin, the happy pumpkin, happy all the day. And his great big smile will chase your cares away. Chase them away, away. Punky Punkin, the happy pumpkin, never wears a frown. You can see that he's cut out to be a clown. Oh, what a clown is he. The candlelight inside him makes his eyes light up and gleam. They shine right through the window at you for a happy, happy, happy Halloween. Punky Pumpkin's a happy pumpkin, and do you know why? Cause he's a jack-o'-lantern instead of being a pumpkin pie. Coming to you from the great Pacific Northwest and, and the shadow of Mount St. Helens near the shores of the mighty Columbia River, this is Blood and Popcorn. I am your host, Eric. Happy October. We are in the thick of the spooky season now, folks. Our yard looks great. Um, my house smells great. I got pumpkin candles and apple cider candles everywhere. I'm planning my Halloween day lineup, which usually starts off with some Universal and Hammer classics around breakfast. And then I tend to choose a theme for the rest of the day. Like one year I did bottom shelf VHS rentals you never rented. Or VHS horrors you rented only because Creepshow and Friday the 13th were out. Uh, also on, on deck, my daughter and I are going to be off to Son of Monsterpalooza the weekend of October 14th at the Marriott in Burbank, California, which should be a blast. If you're going to be there, hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you at Blood Popcorn Pod. At Blood Popcorn Pod. All ran together. And again, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, also, a big shout out to our listeners in Germany. Because just like David Hasselhoff, we are big in Germany, where 26% of our downloads are coming from. So thank you very much. I see you, Germany. I love you. And to you, I say Prost, which leads to what I am drinking today. Well, today I am, in fact, drinking a gin and tonic with Roku Gin. Now, this is a Japanese gin made using the traditional recipe of juniper berries, rye, barley, but they've added some extras here. They they have some sakura flower, sakura leaf, yuzu peel, sencha tea, Gyokuro tea. I probably butchered it, but I'm going with that enunciation. Gyokuro tea and Sancho pepper. And I have to say, this one was worth every penny. Oh my gosh. It's really complex. And when you use it in a gin martini or just, you know, do it straight, those layers really just unroll over the palate. I mean, you can just feel them just, you know, disseminating themselves. Uh, they also balance really well with the quinine and tonic for a gin and tonic. So just really impressive. This one really has definitely earned its permanent shelf space in my home theater bar. Uh, so Roku Gin, next time you're in a bar and you're going to order a, a gin drink, see if they have it. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, so let's talk about two IP reboots with very different results. So I'm going to say the pop culture of Gen X's youth officially went on sale around 2004-ish, maybe 2005, because that's when we saw a lot of remakes and reboots of franchises. Studios either considered, you know, tapped out, primarily horror and sci-fi, or they dusted off IPs that were never truly exploited to their maximum potential. So in the 2000s, you have, of course, 
Rom Zombie's attempt at a new Halloween franchise, which, let's be honest, was not well received. Um, you had a Hills Have Eyes remake, which actually was pretty good. You had a Fright Night remake, which I finally watched a couple weeks ago. This is part of my trend of trying to watch something new. Um, so I finally watched it a couple weeks ago. Not bad. I actually I actually kind of liked it. Um, there is the 2006 remake of Black Christmas from the same folks who brought you the Willard remake. Um, there was a Piranha remake, Texas Chainsaw, Friday the 13th. So this trend of rebooting or reimagining um, 80s or late 70s titles has been going on for some time now. And honestly, some of them are pretty good. Like, I really liked the Hills Have Eyes remake by Alex Aha. Um, I loved the new spin that the antagonists were survivors of nuclear testing in the area, that no one bothered to check to see if anybody, you know, were living in the deep recesses of the desert. And also the use of the Walter Hill plot from Southern Comfort. Um, National Guard soldiers thrust into a situation in a foreign terrain against an enemy that knows the terrain all too well and how to use it. Southern Comfort was, of course, you know, a commentary on Vietnam before you could really make films directly about Vietnam. I mean, while a critical hit and a box office hit, Apocalypse Now did not really clear that path, probably because it was also such an arty film. It really wasn't until Platoon in 1986 that Vietnam was seen as box office acceptable and the nation was really ready to look back at it with some honest reflection. And of course, when you learn to view the world through the prism of economics, as I keep telling you, it lets studios know that there was plenty of money to be made from Vietnam films. And we saw a lot of them come out over the course of the next three to four years after Platoon. So this year, we recent, recently received uh, two sequel reboots or sequel boots or relaunches, whatever they're, they're going to call them, of two iconic 80s films. One of them gets it right. The other... It's not necessarily that they get it wrong. It just doesn't use the source material in a different way or double down on the original concept or use it as a springboard for something else. Unfortunately, it comes off just like another sequel in a line of lackluster sequels that all lost the plot a long time ago. So first, I'd like to talk about Prey. Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. Maui, Nita. Now, this is the Predator sequel released exclusively on Hulu. And this is, what, the seventh film, if you include the AVB t AVP titles, um, in a franchise which has lasted over the span of 35 years. And you think after that you wouldn't, there really wouldn't be anything left to mine for material here? Yet, writer-director Dan Trotchenberg and co-writer Patrick Ison found a way to make one of the more satisfying entries since the original. Yep, I said that. Uh, when I first heard the pitch, I immediately thought it was brilliant. Taking the Predator concept back in time and basically making it Turax Son of Stone versus the Predator. Uh, awesome idea. And if you're not familiar with Turax Son of Stone, that is a comic that started in the 1950s through Dell Comics about a Native American hunter and his younger brother who are hunting buffalo one day, I believe, and find themselves... Um, 
lost in a valley on a much lower plane. It's almost like a massive crater. And inside this valley, dinosaurs still exist, which means they're fighting for their lives every single day as they try to find a way home. So obviously this predates, you know, even the 70s kids show Land of the Lost. Um, but the idea I'm unleashing the predator on a 1700s Native American tribe was absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. So I wanted Turok versus the Predator, and they gave it to me in a way I did not expect, yet exceeding my expectations. So this installment centers on a Comanche tribe in the Great Plains in 1719. The main character is a young girl by the name of Naru, who's probably, I think, 15. They don't, I don't recall them ever saying what her age was, but she's playing like around 15. And within the tribe paradigm, as a female, her future is set for her to either be a healer or, the, or, or a wife and a gatherer. But she would really rather follow in her father's footsteps and be a hunter. Now, her older brother, who is seen as the master hunter and he's war chief, he encourages her, but kind of playfully so. It's like he never tells her that her place is to adopt a female role in the tribe, but he does tell her constantly that she has a long way to go to be a hunter. Still, there's a layer to his interaction with her, which tells us he's actually kind of impressed with how far she's come and mostly her intelligence. Like he, he recognizes that she's really, really smart. And we, of course, get a lot of scenes where she's working on her craft as a hunter. And she has a companion, a dog named Sari. Um, and it's an American dingo. And it's a really, really beautiful dog. And, of course, the predator lands in their hunting grounds. And while everyone else thinks their train is being stalked by a mountain lion, Naru isn't so sure. But unfortunately for her, there actually is a mountain lion in the area, thus causing everyone to continue to doubt her when she tells them that something else is out there. Something isn't right. Of course, all hell breaks loose. You know, with the Predator cutting down her hunting party and a slew of French trappers that they come across, leaving only Noru to confront this high-tech hunter using primitive, primitive weapons. And like I said before, this movie delivers on the promise of the premise. It, it wisely doesn't try to eliminate, uh, try, it, it emulate the original or eliminate the original or reinvent it. It, do, it does its own thing while leaving the original completely intact. It also gives us something completely new. No more soldiers with heavy arms competing against a predator with its own high-tech heavy arms. No mano y mano, as they say. Instead, we get a young woman who will have to rely on her intelligence in addition to her developing her skills. And there's also another theme playing out here, because the predator is a sign of change coming to their land. Because of the predator, Naru discovers the presence of the French trappers, another alien threat to them and their way of life. So this film actually has more layers than just the immediate story. So this one gets it right, you know, and it's made me quite happy to see all the fan art of Naru and her dog out there online. So I think this one is stellar. And uh, let me, you know, let me address something here on this film. A lot of people took the social media, media to call Naru a Mary Sue. And you could not be more wrong, okay? A Mary Sue is a character who is usually a young female who is remarkably talented or gifted with no real explanation as to why. They're basically born gifted or with powers. And they're virtuous with no real weaknesses, you know, or whatever. That's not the case here. We see Naru working her ass off to become a good hunter. And she fails 
a lot of some of the things that she tries. Like some of her best laid plans kind of work, then create a new problem she never considered <laughs> that she would have to deal with. Uh, it's like, hey, I put out the fire by breaching the water tank, but now there's a flood of water about to wreck the campsite, right? So she has far more in common with Indiana Jones than, say, Ray from the Star Wars films. Um, she also has virtually everyone in the tribe telling her what her role is supposed to be. The only positive support is her brother, and even his support is tepid until he realizes she's the only thing standing in the way of the Predator and their tribe. So, no, this character is not a Mary Sue character. Far from it. Being a strong female lead is not a Mary Sue, okay? And if you think that, then you should just remove Aliens, Terminator, and Terminator 2 from your library. And by the way, I would take Naru over Rey any day of the week. Team Naru. Okay? Alright, now that I've pissed off the Star Wars fans, <laughs> let's talk about the next film. So this October, we got a new Hellraiser film. And since I already told you, pray got it right, you know where this one is going. Look, it's a fine film. It has its moments. It's well shot. It's well made. My issues are with the same issues that I had with the sequels after Hellraiser 2. Now, I freely admit I stopped following the franchise after Hellraiser in space. Okay, it just got so far afield from the original concepts that I no longer cared. And the more the films dug into the life of LaMarchand, the creator of the box, the less mystery the box had and the less mystery LaMarchand had. It was much better when the box and his creator were just left unexplored. There's nothing wrong with leaving giant question marks as to origins. We don't have to have an origin story explained to us all the time. It's basically a blank slate on which you can just muse and project endlessly. The other issue I've had is in Hellraiser 2, Pinhead is very clear what the box is, what it's intended for, who it's intended for, and who they typically come for. So at some point, that rule is jettisoned, and the box is no longer a key that people seek, um, you know, people seeking ultimate sexual experiences use to open doorways. And instead, it became just a common mousetrap that any fool can spring, regardless of their intentions. And I seem to remember an interview with Clyde Barker in Fangoria uh, before Hellraiser 2 came out, stating that the delay in the sequel was because the studio basically wanted Pinhead showing up in a small town and killing teenagers like Freddy Krueger. And that is not what he wanted to do, because Hellraiser was about more than that. Unfortunately, that's pretty much what the franchise became. And I understand that in order for a franchise to have a long, healthy life, it needs to expand beyond the original concept, you know, of course. But still, I think there's a lot of road one can go down about sex addiction experience seekers i mean we all know that guy he's married to an amazing beautiful woman that continually chases the next hot thing to cross his path because it's not the sex it's the thrill of the game it's the hunt it's the experience right so when hellraiser 2022 was announced i was really hoping to see the franchise go back to this original concept desire 
the lengths one is willing to go to find the next ultimate experience. Instead, we get a continuation of the concept of the box as a mousetrap, and that the Cenobites are just evil demons doing evil demon things to people who are not seeking their services. So it's disappointing for me, but I'm sure those who have watched every film along the way will like this one. Again, it's well shot, it's well acted, it's well designed. Uh, the Cenobite designs are very cool. You know, and all the fear about the female pinhead, whatever, she's fine. A lot of the Cenobites were often rather fluid to begin with, so I'm not understanding this big deal about there being, you know, a female pinhead. So, and that so that also brings me to another aspect of this. I'm seeing people claim this new Hellraiser film is woke. Look, I know that can be the case with some films. A narrative being forced into a story which, you know, gets in the way. Um, you know, a message over characters and plot. I get it. But to say this about a Hellraiser film is basically announcing that you never actually understood the original Hellraiser. And we're even more clueless on Clyde Barker and his work. The BDSM imagery, fluid sexuality, I mean... Is there any doubt that Julia in the original, played by the stunning Claire Higgins, is attracted to Kirsty? The sexual tension between them and Hellbound is pretty evident. And obviously, if Frank is seeking sexual experiences to take him to the next level, he's clearly had bisexual interludes. I mean, it's literally dripping off both the original films. The only thing that's changed is that in 2022, the films can lean into that a little bit more. Which is why this new film should have. Go back to the source material. Tell us the story about lust. Tell us a story about desire. Tell us a story about seeking the ultimate experience that can never, ever be achieved. Because the reality will never, ever live up to the fantasy we have created in our own minds. And that pursuit can only end one way in disappointment and pain.